This morning I invite you to open your Bibles to Mark 15, verses 42 through 47, and I think it's found on page 1584 of your pew Bibles. The passage we're about to read uh, takes place uh, right after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And this is uh, the word of God for us, his people, this morning. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as the evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. And when he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, placed it in a tomb cut out of the rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of of Jesus, saw where he was laid. This is the word of the Lord. So one extra thing we can note here is in Matthew 27, we have the exact same story told, but it adds one little detail. And the detail it adds is that the tomb Jesus was buried in was actually the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Now, this morning I want to start off with a little bit what might seem like left field. And, and, I, and I hope you'll, you'll bear with me a little because... Uh, I think there's something, some things we need to understand about Scripture to really understand what's happening here with Joseph of Arimathea and with his tomb and with why he asked for Jesus' body to be buried in his tomb. And, and hopefully through this we'll see how the story of Scripture from beginning to end is one beautifully uh, told story wound together for a purpose uh, and, and this this purpose is is singular from beginning to end. And then secondly, what I hope we'll see by the end of the sermon is, is we'll talk about this idea of imputed righteousness. What is imputed righteousness? Why is this such an important theological fact for Christians, for followers of Christ today? So there is a uh, perhaps the best known uh, theologian, uh, New Testament theologian in the world today is a man by, named N.T. Wright. And, and N.T. Wright says this. He says, history does not repeat itself. It rhymes. History does not repeat itself. It rhymes. In fact, N.T. Wright says this is exactly what happens with Scripture and with the Bible. And, and it, is, it helps us read scripture when we understand that this is what happens with scripture so scripture has a rhythm and a rhyme to it for example in the old testament we read the story of the hebrews uh, enslaved in egypt and and how they are freed by god they cross the the the, Jordan, the red sea and then later on the jordan into israel and and but they were slaves and then they had to be freed by god and then in the new testament the rhyme we hear is the apostle paul tells us that we are slaves to sin and what we need is jesus to set us free from the bondage to sin so there is a rhyme here 
Adam, the Old Testament tells us, is the one who brought sin into this world. And in the New Testament teaches us that we need a second Adam, Jesus, to free us from this sin that has been brought into this world. And in the Old Testament, we encounter King David, who is a king who is after a man after God's own heart. And the New Testament story tells us of Jesus, David's heir, who would bring his eternal kingdom into earth. So this is some of the rhyme we find within Scripture. And I think you kind of smell what I'm stepping in here a little bit, right? So, uh, And we're going to build off this. What is this rhyme we see in Scripture? And there's often one parallel that is overlooked, and it is that if we look today at Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, what we should be doing to try to understand it is asking, well, well, what does it rhyme with in the Old Testament? Is there some way the Old Testament speaks about tombs and being buried that, that can help us understand what is happening with Jesus in this tomb of Joseph of Arimathea? So we're going to start off what seems like left field, and we're going to work our way back to Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, and, and hopefully we can start understanding a little bit about what is happening here at the end of the Gospel of Mark. So here's the first rhyme I want to think about. John the Baptist rhymes with Elisha. He used the scriptural rhyme of Elisha. In Matthew 11 and Matthew 17, Jesus taught that John the Baptist was the Elijah who was to come. That is literally what Jesus said. Matthew and Mark described John the Baptist's clothing as being what? Does any, anyone remember what John the Baptist's clothes, what he wore? Camel hair and the leather belt. By the way, in 2 Kings, it describes Elijah as wearing camel hair and leather belt. If there's one thing I have learned about moving to the southern part of the valley in Visalia is, is uh, every year we have this World Egg Expo, and maybe some of you heard about it. It's the largest farm show in the world. And I am not from a farming kin at all, so I, I sometimes would go to this just to kind of be a fish out of water. And... Uh, uh, a walk around, and one thing I've noticed is that people from all the world come to this farm show. Uh, farmers from all over the world come to this farm show, whether they be from the valley or Iowa or wherever in the world. And you can all tell they're farmers because they all dress the same. All right, they all got their boots, they all got their jeans. I mean, this is, you can tell a farmer a mile away. There's a rhyme to how farmers dress. There's a rhyme with Elijah and John the Baptist in how they dressed. And then in the Gospel of Luke, an angel shows up to Zechariah and announces to Zechariah that his son, John the Baptist, will go forth in the spirit of whom? The power of Elijah. Elijah's name literally means God is Yahweh. His whole life, Elijah's entire life, was appointing out to everyone who he met, God is Yahweh. John the Baptist's entire life was pointing out to everyone who the Messiah was, and it is Jesus. There is a rhyme here. Scripture is rhyming. It isn't repeating because John is not actually literally Elijah, but 
It rhymes. There is a rhythm to this. So if John the Baptist rhymes with Elijah, and John the Baptist preceded who? Jesus. Prepared the way for Jesus. The question we should then ask, well, who rhymes with Jesus? Who rhymes with Jesus in the Old Testament? Especially in this context. So Elijah preceded whom? I mean, John the Baptist preceded Jesus, and John the Baptist rhymes with Elijah. Who followed Elijah? Elisha. So consider this. Elisha did all kinds of miracles. Oodles of miracles. I want to tell you about a few of them. In 2 Kings chapter 2, Elisha's first miracle, after crossing the Jordan River, uh, by the way, some people think his first miracle was to slap the Jordan River uh, with, with the rolled up cloak of Elijah, and then it split two ways and he could go through the middle, except for the rabbis teach that that is actually still Elijah's miracle. They give that miracle to Elijah because it's Elijah's cloak, and he gave Elisha the means to do it. So this is what the rabbis teach. That is Elijah's miracle, not Elisha's. So what is Elisha's first miracle? He crosses the Jordan. He goes to this town, a town with bad water. And he throws a bunch of salt into the water, and he turns bad water good. What is Jesus' first miracle? He goes to a town, and he turns good water to wine. See, what Jesus does here is not only does he rhyme with Elisha, he's always got to, like, one-up him a little bit. Right? And, and we can see how that works out more in Scripture. In, in 2 Kings 4, Elisha goes to the town of Shunem and he raises a boy back to life. And in Luke chapter 7, Jesus goes to the town of Nain and raises the son of the widow of Nain. Now you might think this is a little bit of stretch. Okay, so they both raised two boys to life. But what if I told you in the day of Jesus, the town of Shunem had been built over by what became known as the town of Nain. Happened in the exact same place. And then in 2 Kings chapter 4, a man has 20 loaves of bread and a lady. Elisha then took the 20 loaves of bread and he dispersed it to a hundred men. And these 20 loaves of bread somehow were enough to feed a hundred men. And everyone went, wow. And then we get the story of Jesus. And Jesus took much less than 20 loaves of bread and he fed 4,000 men, not counting women and children. And then he did it again, not counting 5,000 this time, not counting men and women and children, because Jesus rhymes with Elisha, but he's got to one-up them a little bit. Then we get 2 Kings chapter 5, and we have this story of Naaman, this foreign general, and he came to Elisha to be healed from leprosy, and Elisha tells him, well, you have to go wash in the Jordan River seven times. And then in Luke 17, Jesus is approached by ten lepers, wanting to be healed, and Jesus sends them away to the priests to be cleansed. And the Samaritan one, the Samaritan leper, this is the one who came back to Jesus to say thank you. And we can see several rhymes in the story of Naaman and the ten lepers. There is a foreigner in the mix. The disease was leprosy. All of them had to go somewhere else to be healed, to the Jordan River or to the priests. It, by the way, happened in the exact same place in Palestine, between Galilee and Samaria. And the one to come back and to say thank you, in both situations, 
was the foreigner, Naaman and the Samaritan. And when Elijah was taken into heaven and by the flaming chariot, Elijah asked, God, if I'm going to do this, I want a double portion of Elijah's spirit. So Elijah did seven miracles, including the last one of Elisha slapping the water. He did seven miracles. And if I told you Elisha had a double portion of Elijah's spirit, how many miracles would you say Elisha did? How many? Close. It was 13. But, well, hold on. 13 plus this odd story. There's just a few verses tucked away in the middle of 2 Kings 13. Yeah, it is 14. I'll just tell it to you, right? But it, 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 it's, it's strange. In 2 Kings 13, we have these odd verses. And, and then we have the story of these friends who are about to bury a friend of theirs who had died suddenly. And so they were on their way to the cemetery or the tomb to bury their friend. And, and then they heard news that the Midianites were invading. And so they were panic they didn't know what to do they had this friend uh and so what they did is they found the nearest tomb they could find and just chucked his friend in there and said we'll come back for him later now this friend that they threw into the tomb got tossed on top of the bones of someone in the tomb and popped back to life guess whose tomb that was elisha's 14 so here's the question If Elisha's name means, my God is salvation. And when a dead man is put into a tomb with Elisha and comes back to life, and if scripture rhymes, and Jesus is in the habit of rhyming with Elisha and one-upping him, the question is this, what can we begin to expect? From Jesus too. If Elisha's tomb causes one man to come to life, and scripture rhymes, what, and on top of it, Jesus is in the habit of one-upping Elisha, what can we expect from Jesus Joseph of Arimathea gave Jesus his tomb to use. Now this is a huge sacrifice, by the way. Tombs were often the most expensive thing a family owned. Because it had to be big enough for the entire family, an extended family as well. And, And perhaps this was a new tomb that Joseph of Arimathea had just dug and paid for for his family. And in that sense, he was making a big sacrifice by giving it to Jesus because, you see, kosher laws said you cannot have two unlike things put together, right? So so you can't do that with food, but it's not just food. People from different families who were unlike could not be buried together. So some people say this is a new tomb. It had never been used before. But what if something else is going on here? What if, what if there is a rhyme of scripture that can help us understand why Joseph of Arimathea would be willing to break kosher laws 
and have someone not of his family, Jesus, buried in his tomb. In 1 Kings 13, there is an odd story of a prophet from Judah. This is when Israel is split into two kingdoms, Judah and Israel in the north. And this prophet from Judah was sent by God to the kingdom of the north to prophesy against it. And he went up to the north and he prophesied that their pagan altar that had just been set up would be destroyed. Now King Jeroboam of the northern tribes of Israel who had just set up this altar was rather offended and rather insulted by this. And he was standing right there as this young prophet was prophesying against them. And he stretched out his hand and he pointed at the prophet from Judah and he said, seize him. That's right then when his arm shriveled up and the altar split in two. King Jeroboam then said uh, to the prophet, hold on, hold on a second, please pray for me. And so the prophet from Judah did, and his arm straightened out again. The king was so happy that he wanted this prophet to come and stay and eat with him, probably thinking, this guy's got some serious power. I'd like to find ways to use it for my own good. Uh, But the prophet said to him that God had told him he had to leave immediately, not stop and eat with anyone, and go right back to Judah. So he went on his way. Now, there was another prophet an older prophet, in the town where all these things took place. And when he heard about this young prophet and what he had done, he went out to him and met him on the road and said, invited him to eat. Now the young prophet said, well, I can't because God told me I can't eat with anyone. I have to head straight home. But the older prophet said, well, you know what? God just told me that it's okay because I'm a prophet. We're we're good. We're kind of like bros. Um, you can come to my place. We, we can eat and hang out. You're, you're fine. So the young prophet believed him. Went to the older prophet's home. Had dinner with him. Went on his way. And it wasn't too far down the road where a lion came out of the woods and mauled the younger prophet and killed him. Now when the older prophet heard this, he knew what he had done was wrong. He knew he had erred greatly and dishonored God. So he told his two sons that he would wanted to be buried with the young prophet, bone by bone, breaking all kosher laws. Why would he want to do this? Because he said this young prophet was righteous. And he wanted the not-likeness of the younger prophet which which was his righteousness, to become his righteousness. This was his hope. That two things that are not alike, that the righteousness of the one would rub off on his unrighteousness. What if this is what Joseph of Arimathea wanted? I think it makes a ton of sense. He wanted to be buried with Jesus, bone by bone. He wanted the righteousness of the most righteous of all men to become his righteousness. Now, he didn't know what we know today. 
that the tomb would be empty just a few days later. He didn't know that where Elisha's bones would only cause another person to come to life, Jesus would raise himself from death to life. But what Joseph of Arimathea did get right is imputed righteousness. That the righteousness of God in Christ becomes the righteousness of all who are buried in Christ. Don't take my word for it. Take the Apostle Paul's word for it. Romans 6 verse 4 says this. It should be on your screens. We therefore who are buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have life. In Revelations chapter 3, Jesus is preaching a sermon to the church of Laodicea. He says famously in verse 20, Behold, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. It's a famous metaphor, and we tend to think that Jesus is knocking on the door of, in the hearts of unbelievers, of people who don't know, right? Like, let me in, right? That we tend to think it's this way, but we forget the fact that Jesus is already talking to believers. He's talking to a church, to people like you and me. So consider this. Jesus on the outside, in the dark, cold, knocking to get in. That should be me. Knocking in the cold, in the dark, left out. That should be you. But in his stunning role reversal, Jesus is the one outside. Not me. Not you. This is imputed righteousness. It's the ultimate role reversal. The cross that should have been mine became Jesus' throne. The inheritance of death that should have been yours became Jesus' birthright. The tomb that should have held us in its dark embrace for eternity is empty forever. And the inheritance of Christ in heaven is waiting for us. Now at Visalia Christian Reformed Church, whenever we baptize someone, we proclaim the same thing over them. We say to them, for you Christ was born into this world. For you Christ lived amongst us and taught and did miracles. For you Christ went to the cross and died. For you Christ left the tomb again empty. For you he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And that last part, that part is key. Because Christ, as John Bunyan says, Christ is our righteousness. And our righteousness is where? Heaven. That means that my sin today, my failures yesterday, my brokenness tomorrow, of these things God does not say, where is this person's righteousness? How dare this person come before me? He's a disaster. Because my righteousness, in fact, is right there beside him. And Christ, in his righteousness, 
is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And then one day, Christ will return for you. This Christ will return for you. In the words of another theologian, he says, Remember, Christ is your righteousness. Christ is your righteousness. Your righteousness is in heaven. It is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It doesn't mean, it doesn't get better when your faith is strong. It doesn't get worse when your faith is weak. It is perfect because it is Christ. So look away from yourself. Rest in Him. Lean on Him. The story of Joseph of Arimathea's tomb begins by saying that it is preparation day. The day before Sabbath. The day of rest. The rabbis teach that you only need to repent and turn to the Lord on the day before you die. But, since you do not know which day you will die, repent today. Today is preparation day. Praise be to God the Father, the Son Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please join me in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us scripture with all of its beauty, uh, with all of its rhythms and its rhymes, because Lord, we are a people who are hard of hearing. We are a people who, who do not like to know things, to see things, to understand things, because we are so distracted by our world and our passion. So Lord, we need you to tell us the story again and again and again so we can see its rhythms and its rhymes to know that you, that you, O Lord, have set aside our hearts of stone and said and replaced them with your heart. That our lack of righteousness has now been replaced by your righteousness. That our death, which waits for us one and all, is replaced with your life. Lord, help us to see, to hear, to understand this story in ways which transform the way we live. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.